All right, we're going to start off this morning, we're going to start off in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. That's uh, where we'll head off to. Uh, for those of you maybe the first time in here, for this class what we're doing is uh, we're looking at some of the historical psalms. Uh, psalms that have a definite tie to a certain, asp- certain time in biblical history. Uh, and we know that as we talked last week according to the psalm titles that are uh, given at the at the top of some of the uh, some of those psalm titles or some of the psalms. So we'll be looking at uh, eventually Psalm 52 today, but we're going to start over in 1 Samuel 21. I'd encourage you to to join me over there in 1 Samuel 21. And uh, before we get before we get going, uh, I had a couple little questions that I was trying to think through and look look at what's coming up with Christmas and the holiday season and everything. So here's a question for you. How many tons of garbage do Americans create from Thanksgiving to New Year's? Anyone want to guess? What's that? 25 million? It is. It's actually 25, estimated about 25 million tons of trash between Thanksgiving and New Year's. Um, if you were to take all the Christmas cards, stack them on a football field, all the, all the Christmas cards we send, stack them on the area of a football field, how many stories tall do you think those, for each year, how many stories tall do you think the uh, Christmas cards would stack they would be? Ten stories? Seven. Seven. There's only four choices. But actually, it is, it's, ten, it's ten stories high is what they estimate with the numbers of Christmas cards. Now, maybe you're really good. You hang up all the Christmas cards. You keep them around. My grandma would always leave them around for months afterwards, hung up on the, on the walls. We, we don't do that. We hang them up for a little bit, but that's the way it is. A lot of trash. Which of these was actually found in the garbage by a sanitation engineer? There's actually a whole article on don't call us sanitation engineers. We're tired of political correctness. Just call us garbage men. But I, I was surprised when I was reading that. Which one would you say probably found in there? Plutonium actually was plutonium was found after the Manhattan Project. They found they actually found it all the way in Washington, which makes me how did it get that far? And then find they found it in the garbage. Someone actually did find four gold plates in the garbage. The person was dumpster diving looking for some food and found four gold plates. Ended up being twenty seven thousand dollars. Someone did find a fifty thousand dollar violin in the garbage. And then someone did find, a person in New York, a lady was walking by uh, the garbage one day and found this painting. She finds this painting. She's like, oh, that'll go with the paintings in my house. She, she brings it in. She puts it in her house for a while. And then she saw it was watching the American Antique Roadshow. So she brought it into the Antique Roadshow. And there, they told her, hey, this is, this is a, a painting by Tamayo or Tamayo or however you say it. I'm not an art connoisseur. Uh, and they said, yeah, it's estimated a value of a million dollars. She was like, really? Then they looked at her and said, but the FBI has been looking for this painting for 20 years. (laughs) It's a stolen painting. And she said, okay, but there's a $15,000 finder's fee. So I guess a a little silver lining, you go from zero to a million back to 15,000. I'll still take the 15,000 for picking up a painting in the trash. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, 8,500 because of tax. Nice. (laughs) Very good. Very true. How much extra food is thrown out between New Year's and Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving and New Year's, by Americans? Just because I have the six point, I just, I'm like, I just got to put in a decimal. No, it's not 6.357. It is. It's 5 million pounds of food is estimated to be thrown out in America between Thanksgiving and New Year's. That, that staggers my mind when we think of the, the battles with, with food and people with uh, hunger. But I would argue that probably most of us sitting here, we may have find our, found ourselves sometime in our life having very little. I remember a moment in my life when I was uh, seven, six, or five, I might have been a little bit younger. But I just remember we were, we were down at Bob Jones. My parents were, my dad was in school. And we were down to nothing. All we had was a can of lima beans and caro syrup. And my dad decided to open up and cook the lima beans and then pour caro syrup on top of it. And to this day, those two items are like scarred into my palate that I I don't enjoy either taste of either of those. 
But uh, the, the Lord used some different people to bring some food. And it was a neat, neat moment where God's people provided. But I, I remember that. But I haven't been personally in my, point, in my point in life where David finds himself in 1 Samuel 21, where he's, he's so hungry, he's going to find himself begging for bread. In fact, uh, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is going to have his disciples. They're hungry. They're going around. If you remember, they're picking the grain, and it ends up being on the Sabbath day, and the Pharisees come to, to Jesus and say, why are your men violating and breaking the Sabbath? They're, doing, they're taking that which is holy, and they're profaning it, and they're making it corrupt. And Jesus actually refers back to this story in 1 Samuel 21, where David is going to go to the priest's uh, Ahimelech and ask for for some bread. So if you're there in First Samuel 21, let's let's get a little bit of the story, and then we're going to take from the story, and we're going to jump into the psalm that is a result of of what David is going to be writing and David's account in his life here. So what we have here is First Samuel 21. David is going to be fleeing, obviously fleeing from Saul. That's going to be a trend that we're going to see in this study. Uh, throughout this class, but it says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest, and Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David and said unto him, Why are you alone? No man is with you. So David is, is fleeing Saul. We know that that is the case uh, from the previous chapters, even right before Jonathan is going with David and telling David, Hey, this is happening. You need to flee. You need to run. And uh, David flees, makes his way to Nob. Now, if you'll notice, Nob, there's, there's a really interesting, Nob is located right up in the, the tribal area of Benjamin. It's only about two, two and a half miles northeast or northwest of uh, Jerusalem. And so it's not very far. In fact, it's believed that Nob was a place where Saul would often go to, to either make sacrifice or spend time there. He would send individuals there from Jerusalem. Uh, there was a, seemed to be a potential close tie between Nob and the priest at Nob and, and Dave, or Saul. So David makes his way to Nob. As he's, as he's making his way there, Ahimelech was afraid uh, of meeting David. Now, the question that, that I had was wondering as I'm wrestling through it is, why, why are you afraid? Could it be that he knew and the word had gotten out that Saul is hunting David and here comes David? That's a possibility. Um, has word been sent out that if you see David, then you need to, to let me know? We know as we'll get further into this, the, the story here, that that frustrates Saul, that people knew where David was and yet Nobody would, nobody would tell him. He didn't understand why David was alone. Maybe, maybe David only had a few men with him. It seems like there were a couple men with him. But he wonders again, he's wondering, why are you alone? Could it be that there's an association? If I'm associated with David, my, you know, I'm going to be in trouble. I want to keep that association at a distance. Could he just be wondering, hey, you're the bodyguard of the king, which David was at this point, or part of the bodyguard. And part of the, it seems like his, his men that are with him are part of the bodyguard. Ahimelech would have known some of them from that association of the king coming up to Nob multiple times. Could it be that he's looking and saying, why are you alone and the king's not with you? Is something going on? David's response to him is very, very interesting. He replies that the king has commanded or charged me with the business, verse number two. Now, that ought to ring. If you go through and you go back... Is David, is David on the business of the king? No, David's running from the king. So, so is David here, is he lying to, to Ahimelech? Is he spinning the truth? Is he telling the truth? There's, there's a lot of uh, controversy. There's a lot of people right on both sides say, yes, he was. No, he wasn't. Uh, was, he, was he saying? And, and what it comes down to often is in verse number two, where it talks about the king hath commanded me a business. Is the king that he is referring to, is he, is he referring to Saul? So if he's referring to Saul, then David just propagates this, this story to protect he and uh, his men that are, that are with him. Why not tell this priest the truth? You know, I don't know that there was necessarily uh, parishioner, uh, clergy, privilege there or not at the time, the totally different system than we would live in. But David just, he does not come forthright and say, could it be because 
of that, that close association with Saul and the priest of Nob? Could it be that he just doesn't trust the family, the lineage of, of this priest? Because Ahimelech, his, his grand, great-grandfather is Eli. His grandfather is Hophni, who, if you remember back, Hophni and Phinehas are put to death because of their, their corrupt, wicked ways. So this is, the line, this is the line of Eli that's there. Maybe David just looks and says, I, I don't trust you. We don't exactly know why he does not come right out and tell, the, tell, him, the, tell him the truth. Another potential interpretation of this word king is that David is referring to God, which he does on multiple occasions. In fact, Samuel refers to him in verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 7, it's talking about God being the king. Chapter 12, verse 12, the, the, the reign of God will be among the people. David, even in multiple different psalms, talks about my king and my God, which if he's, if he's doing that at that point, if he's talking about I am being commanded, I am being commissioned, there's something bigger that God is doing, and I am going on behalf of God, then David is just looking and he's using his words in a very shrewd uh, way in order to put a little bit of the truth out there and yet shade some of the truth in other ways. And we know that that has happened. Saul or Samuel is told by God when you're going to anoint David, if, they, if Saul comes and asks, you tell him you're going to make sacrifice, which he was doing, but he only gave him the information he needed to know. Honestly, on this whole thing, I don't, I don't have a complete answer. To me, you're looking at it and saying, David, why would you tell a lie if, if we end up on that side? I would never tell a lie. You know, I would never. If my, if my life and my family was in danger, I, honestly, I, I don't know what I would do until I'm in that situation. And we have to look and we have to, and I'm, and I'm not throwing out an idea of situational ethics and you just, hey, whatever, whatever is the best at that time and you can just do whatever. But there does seem to be an aspect where when someone's life is in jeopardy, that something can, uh, is, is allowed at this, at this point. It's interesting to me, if, if David is just lying his way and God's condoning the lie, why does Jesus even refer back to this account? But Jesus refers back and says, what David did here in this whole account, it, it, was, it was right, it was okay. So I, I personally, I lean that maybe that, that David is just using his words very shrewdly. And talking about, I am on a, a mission from God, so to speak, and I'm, I'm going that way. But that's, that's my personal interpretation. You may disagree. That's fine. But we can, we can continue to wrestle through and have great conversations sometime. But right now is not the time when we'll do that. What, uh, what happens, though, is David continues with. He, he looks at Abiathar, or Ahimelech, sorry. He looks at Ahimelech and he says, hey, we're hungry. Can you give me the bread that's in your hand? Now, the idea of in your hand is not that he's carrying it around, but the, the bread that you possess, that, that you have here at this location. Can, can you give it to us? And Ahimelech looks in response to, to David, verse 3. He says, uh, he says, give me the five loaves of bread in my hand, or, or there is present. And the priest answered and says, David, there's, there's no common bread under my hand, only that which is holy or sacred bread. So the, the table of showbread or the, the bread that was offered to God, it would sit there and then every day they would change it and the bread that was cold would then be eaten by the priest and it was allowed to be eaten by the priest for them to have some sustenance, but it was only supposed to be done by them. So David's now asking for something that, according to the law, is only for the priests and he's saying, hey, can, can we have this to, to eat? And... Ahimelech seems to, and we, we know that this happens, uh, not bend the rules, but he allows in a dire situation, a dire circumstance. In this case, this person's about to die. They're in dire straits. Let's, we're going to allow them if, he says, and he responds to him, he says, if you're clean. He's like, I only have sacred bread. And are your men clean? Are they ceremonially as clean as possible? Now, understanding that they're on some sort of a, a mission or a uh, army crusade or something like that, there, there's only so far that they can go in being clean. So David refers to, he says, well, they, they had not been with a woman uh, and they've been kept from us about these three days. And so Ahimelech, through the, through the law, you can go back, study all the law if, you, if your heart desires. He says, okay, and he allows, uh, he allows them to, to eat of the bread. Now, what's interesting is you go to verse 7. And verse 7 is right at the middle of this whole, this whole dynamic of what's, what's going on here. 
Now a certain man, just out of this, out of the clear blue, it almost comes out like, why did, who cares about this guy sitting in the corner? You know, why, why, why are we worried about him? But it says, now a certain man, servant of Saul, was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chiefest of the herdsmen that belonged to Saul. So here's Saul's chief shepherd. He's being detained uh, by the priest. Now the question is, why is he being detained? Is it because he had done a criminal act, possibly? And so he was, he was there um, serving his, his time, doing his uh, community service. Was it because he was unclean and coming in contact with some of the sheep and doing some of the work with the, she- the sheep and maybe butchering or doing different things like that? He had been unclean and so he needed to go. Some have suggested that Doeg had leprosy and so he was there and he had to go through the proofing time proving that he did not have uh, the leprosy. We don't know exactly why he was detained, but we know that he was there for a little bit. And then after a while, he's going to be released and he is going to go back to Saul's courts, which we'll, we'll pick up in a, in a few moments. Now, David also then, after that, in verse 8, he says, do you, do you have any weapons? Which, I mean, I guess you could probably do it here, but, you know, you don't usually walk into a church and go, hey, do you have a, do you have a weapon for me? Do you, have a, do you have a gun or a sword? Or, But David understood, and probably because David knew what was present at Nob, because he had gifted them something when there was when there was ceremonies earlier on. He gave them the sword of Goliath, and and that's what Ahimelech says. He says, "I have the sword of Goliath here." And what was interesting is the law does allow actually, if you were to gift something to the for the Lord's service, you could actually redeem it back. You could buy it back. So David could have asked for his gift to the priest there back. Uh, but he would have to redeem it, pay a price. But he doesn't, he doesn't have to do that. He's allowed to, to take the sword. And he says, yes, give it to me, and, and we're going to go forward. So at this point, if you notice in verse 10, uh, there's a, he gets his food, he gets his weapon, and it says, And David arose and fled that day for fear of Saul. We do find David at a potential low point. He's battling. He is afraid of his life. And now, at least he has some food, he has a little bit of protection, but we know at this point in his life, he's, he's fearful of, of where he's at. He's, he's truly battling, and it's true that when we get to the point in our lives when, when we are not abiding in God, whether David is not or what at this point, fear, fear strikes us. And so David, David battling with this is, is running from Saul, and the rest of Samuel 21, we'll look at in the next couple weeks here, uh, because they play into some of our other psalms, but David David is on the run, and we're we're familiar with that. Now we pick up the story. Uh, we pick up the story now in chapter twenty-two, verses six to twenty-three. So so David is on the run. He's fleeing Saul. Saul is on the hunt, looking for David. He sends men out. He's going out. They're looking in caves. They're looking all over. We're familiar with a lot of those stories from our from our Sunday school years. We get to this point in, in 2 Samuel 22, or 1 Samuel, excuse me, 22, that Saul is now up in, uh, up in the area of Gibeah and uh, Ramah. It's just even a little bit north of, of Nob, and actually it's where the N is in Benjamin, but I didn't want to cover up the, the Benjamin there. Notice where all of this is taking place. This has a, it has a, a neat historical family twist. Everything where David is fleeing, where David is running, where, where some of this is ha- all happening, it's right in the tribal area of Benjamin. What tribe is Saul from? He's from Benjamin. This is, I mean, this is happening in his own backyard, the area I grew up in, my family, my relatives. The, the people are supposed to be loyal the most to me. All, all this is happening right in Saul's, Saul's own backyard. Now Saul is, we find in verse 6, he's performing his responsibilities. He's sitting under the tree at Ramah. He's sitting there with a spear in hand. He's, he's talking to people. Whether he's just called his, his, all his kinsmen together and all of his authority figures and having a, a big staff meeting, or it seems like he's, he's making judicial uh, decrees and, and rulings. People would come to him and say, King, we have this. What do you say we do? And he makes that official. He's sitting, sitting there with all authority and power in his hand, and he's, he's, he's going, going through this business. So he, he finds himself doing that, And notice what it says in verse 7. It says, Then Saul said unto his servants uh, that stood by about him, 
How hear ye now, you Benjamites? He's going he's to talk right through because it was discovered in verse 6, sorry, it was there, that David's been found. They know, someone knows where David's at. And that's just going to send Saul into another one of his maniacal tirades. He's going to be extremely upset. So he looks at the men of Benjamin, his kinsmen, his friends, the ones who are in a place of authority. It's interesting. It seems as if the people in the authority, those around him, are, are only his kinsmen outside of maybe his chief shepherd, Doeg. But uh, there, there seems to be that aspect. And he, he's going to start appealing to them. Look what he says. He's going he's gonna to say to them, You Benjamites, will the son of Jesse, he doesn't even call him David anymore, he just can't bring, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards and make you all captains of thousands and captives of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? And that there is none that shows, my, uh, shows, shows me that my son even has made a league with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you that is sorry for me or shows unto me that my son has stirred up my servant, David, against me to lie in wait as at this day. So Saul is going to, he's going to have a, a tirade against his, his kinsmen. He says, You're going to stand to lose much. Is he going to give you vineyards? Is he going to give you fields? Is he going to give you all the things that I've already given to you? Will this this Judite, this non-Benjamin, the son of Jesse from Bethlehem in the south, not our kinsmen, not our, they're our kinsmen, but they're not of our tribe, of our clan. We understand that here in this area, right? We understand the whole tribal kinsmen. I mean, when I first came, man, it was like, Wow, everybody is related to everybody here. And you don't say anything here because they're probably related over here. And it just, it blew my mind how, how tightly it was to crack into the, the clan mentality in, in our area. And, and we understand that. So, so David is looking and saying, you really think this, this uh, Judite down there is going to, to give you everything that I've given to you? No, he's going to do what I did. He's going to put, he's going to put all of his people in charge. You're going you're gonna to lose all your positions. So he starts to talk to them about their tribe. He starts to talk to them about their greed. He's, he's saying, you're, you're committing conspiracy against me. Saul is, Saul is doing something that every politician does. They shake you and make you feel insecure. They take away, you're, you're going to lose your money. You're going to lose your home. You're going to lose uh, your ability to have health insurance. You're going to lose your ability. They're going to push you off a cliff in your wheelchair if you vote for the, you know. We, we can go back through. That's what politicians do, and that's what Saul is doing. He's driving these individuals, making them feel insecure. Because Saul, at this point, is feeling completely insecure. Everybody's conspiring against me. And in verse number 8, when he finishes all of this, He's wanting to know. He's saying, tell me where this guy is. Tell me where David is, basically. He's wondering where he is. Um, and and they, they look, and uh, Saul says that all of you have conspired against me, and they all lie and wait this day, and there's no response from them. Whether it's they're completely shocked, like, what is Saul doing to us? Or maybe they're just like, here he goes again, or they're looking and saying, I'm not going to tell you. I'm loyal to, to David, yeah, and I'm not going to tell you, Saul. We, we don't know exactly, but we know there's a silence until, notice who comes on the scene again. Now we get Doeg, the Edomite, showing up and almost taking this power grab. He sees the vacuum. He sees that nobody's, nobody's stepping up, and he's going to jump in, and he's going to say, Then answered Doeg, the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahiatub, and he inquired of the Lord for him. This is what he's saying that Ahimelech did. And gave him victuals, gave him food, and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. So he tells Saul what no one else will. David was at Nob with Ahimelech, and this is what he says. He says that he's inquired of the Lord. Now the earlier passage doesn't talk about that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord or went to the Lord on behalf of David. But we are going to see that I don't think I don't think Doeg's lying here to try and make it worse. Uh, but uh, because Elimelech, when he is accused with this, he doesn't dispute this claim. He doesn't dispute that he inquired on behalf of David. Uh, so I don't I don't think Doeg's lying. I just don't think the earlier part highlighted that it was more looking at the food and the the other thing. Gave him food, gave him weapons. So this is just going to infuriate more, even to the point of. What's the weapon that was given? 
the sword of Goliath? When did this whole tirade really start to take place with Saul and David? Post-Goliath. I mean, it's just all these little things are playing around in his head, and it's just, it's driving him more and more. What's interesting is the facts are true, but the implications here are deadly. There are times in our lives where we can share facts, and we know we're sharing facts, but are we accurately representing the way in which they were shared, in which they were given, or do we find ourselves potentially giving them in such a way to make the person look a little bit shady? We need to be careful that even when we share facts, that we're representing the situation, the individuals in a correct, in a right, in a, in a, in a righteous way. So, so Doeg is, is going for this, this uh, power grab, and Saul is going to send for the priest. He's going to say, you go get him. And, and I always thought like, wow, they got to go all the way up to go all the way back. It's going to take days. No, remember, it's only like two miles. From, from where they're at. It's just, they're just north of Nob now. So he says, you go down south, get, get the priests, come back. They bring him back, and there's going to be this charge of treason against them. Uh, verse 13, Saul says to Ahimelech, uh, uh, says, why have you conspired against me? Verse 13, thou and the son of Jesse, and that thou hast given him bread and a sword and inquired of the Lord for him that he should rise up against me till I am wait at this day. So he lays out exactly what Doeg told him, lays it out as a, a conspiracy. You're, you're committing treason. You're, you're going to be tried. And Elimelech defends himself. What's interesting is how he starts his defense. If I'm, if I'm on trial, I'm going to defend my righteousness. I'm going to defend me. But he has a bigger picture in mind. He sees God's plan. He sees things unfolding. And he doesn't try to defend himself first. He's going to defend David. I find that amazing and honorable and noble to say, hey, I'm going to think about the other people in the, midst of my, in the midst of my difficulty. I'm on trial. I'm going through a hard time. But I want to make sure that you understand, too, that this person was right in what they did. He, he says in, in the verses here, he defends David. He says, um, then Elimelech, verse 14, answered and said, who is faithful among all your servants is David. So he calls him his servant. He calls him a faithful servant. He calls him the king's son-in-law. He says he goes out, he does your bidding. And in your household, he's very honorable. He's respected. People love him. What, what is it that, what has he really done wrong? And besides that, he says, verse 15, he says, I've been interceding on behalf of David before. This is not my first time. He says, did I then, only then at that moment, idea begin to inquire of God for him? The implied answer is no, I've already been doing this. When he's went forth to battle, when you've sent him through on, on journeys, I've been interceding before on behalf of David. So this is nothing new in my life, which I think is very, very honorable, even for us in our lives, is to be continually interceding on behalf of others and on behalf of those who God has placed in our lives to do, to do spiritual duties, to do um, things like that, ministry, and, and keeping those individuals, keeping our pastor before the Lord on a daily routine, which I know so many of you do, and, and taking that concept. He also then, number three, he's going to affirm his loyalty to Saul. He says, be it far from me. I, I'm not coming against you. You are my servant, and I am thy servant. He says, I, I am your servant. He reaffirms that. He's saying, Saul, I didn't know that. And besides that, I don't know of any assassination of plot. He ends the verse 15 with that. He says, for thy servant knows nothing of all of this, less or more. This is all I know. And he lays it out and he gives his defense. And which, I mean, if you're, if you're in the world of Saul right now, if you're going to start off with anything with David, you're just giving yourself your own death sentence. But he chooses to, to side with righteousness even in the face of this, this, this lunatic, even in the face of this, the, the most dire of situations and difficulties, he says, I'm going to side with righteousness, even in the face of potential death. Everybody understands, I mean, maybe not so much today, but any other time in history, you commit treason, you're done. So he understood, but yet he's still going to side with righteousness. And Saul foolishly, he enacts the death sentence upon Elimelech, and, and the priest, verse 16, he says, Thou shalt surely die, Elimelech, thou and thy father's house. And the king says to his footmen, he says, Turn, slay the priests of the Lord, because their hand is with David, and because they knew it and did not show it to me. 
But the servants of the king would not put forth their hand to fall against the priests. Even in the midst of difficulty, these individuals are in the, in the midst of a king's sentence. They're even going to look and say, there are some lines I'm not going to cross for righteousness sake. Was it because they were priests? Possibly. Was it because his footmen realized that Ahimelech was right and David's really not against Saul? Was it because they looked and said, uh, we don't want to slay, we don't think Elimelech's guilty? Whatever it was, this is a, this is a bold face, shake, a fish shake in front of the king. And he looks and says, they look and say, we're going to do what's right, even when we're commanded to do what is wrong. And the king looks at Doeg and says, Doeg, here he is again. You step up, you go slay, and he does. He goes and he slays 85 of the priests, Four score and five. Um, he, he kills the priests, verse 18. Uh, and then uh, he goes then beyond that. That's the idea of the, the linen ephod. They were dressed even in their, their uh, ministry garb, so to speak. Uh, and then to Nob, the, the harem or the ban is placed upon them what's in, by the king. What's, what's interesting is the ban was something that was given in Levitical law to deal with the Canaanite people living in the land. It was not supposed to be enacted upon Jewish cities, Jewish individuals. It was only to be for the Gentile, for the Canaanites at the time to purge the land when, when Joshua and the conquest occurred. That's what was to happen. And King Saul and Doeg here are going to place that, the harem or the ban, upon these individuals, Jewish kinsmen, and he goes there, and he wipes them out. He kills those with the sword, the men, the women, the children, the infants, the ox, the, the donkeys, the sheep, all at the edge of the sword. Whether it was just him, or it was him and some other followers, we don't know. But we know that through all of that, what happens is verse 20, verse 20 is where we get the rest of our background. One of the sons of Elimelech, the son of Ahitab, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar showed to David that Saul had slain the Lord's priests. So he, he finds David, Abiathar gets away, and David is going to compassionately respond to Abiathar. Now, last time we left David, he was fearful. The last time we were looking at him, he was afraid of Saul. And now he's going to look at Abiathar, and look how he responds in verses 22 and 23. David said to Abiathar, I knew that in that day when Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide with me. Don't be afraid or fear not. Says the guy who just a chapter and a half ago was completely afraid. For he that seeks my life seeks your life. But with me thou shalt find safeguard. So David's response, he took personal responsibility for this massacre. Which I look and I'm not like David and be like, Saul, you're, you're responsible, which we know Saul was. And yet David understood that his actions had consequences. Whether this was him feeling this way because he lied or because he just went to Nob and asked for something that he could have probably just went somewhere else and found. He doesn't give us details. He just looks and says, I feel responsible for what has happened. He looks and he says, Abiathar, I'll offer you friendship. It's really all I have right now. Now put yourself in Abiathar's shoes. He's just experienced the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of probably his family, maybe his kids. Maybe all of his entire livelihood has just been decimated. He has absolutely nothing. When the ban occurs in a, in a, in a city, there, it is laid waste. Jericho was under the ban. It was to be completely annihilated. So Abiathar has just lost security in everything. And David looks and says, I can offer you friendship. I can encourage you not to be afraid. And then I can offer you protection. Uh, you come with me and I'll offer you some security. So to this individual who has no security, and this is what I find ironic and I think is ironic, the part in the verse there where David looks and he says, hey, the, the one who is seeking my life is also seeking your life. And I'm running through caves and I really have no place. To, and I just begged for bread and I have one sword and I really don't have a whole lot more, but I can offer you security. I can offer you hope. I can offer you friendship. 
He really has nothing to offer except for that personal relationship to be close by, to help. And I, I think there's a really great truth for us, a responsibility for individuals and friends that are going through hardship, not just a platitude of, hey, I'm praying for you, but offering that time, offering that companionship, offering that friendship. What can I do? And following through and offering those helps to say, hey, you're going through a really difficult time. Let me do something about it. Now, out of this whole situation, everything that is happening here, David writes Psalm 52. So let's go over to Psalm 52 and let's look how David responds. Because my question is, Really, how can you, David, the one who is just afraid and the one who has absolutely no security in your life, how is it that you're able to look at Abiathar and say, don't be afraid, let me help you, you will be safe with me, you will be secure. And David, David gives us insight into that in Psalm 52, his mindset, his understanding of, of what he is saying. Now he's going to start off with, why do you boast? Why do you boast thyself in mischief? Oh, mighty man, the warrior man. You almost, you almost get the picture of Doeg. The, I, look, look at me. I've just went through and I slayed this entire city. The, the, you, you're a warrior man. Why, and now you're sitting here and you almost get the picture of David and Abiathar hiding in caves, wondering, looking around every single bush and, and every single rock to see if anybody's out there. And you have Doeg and Saul just, just yucking it up in the, in the king's palace, eating away, enjoying life faring sumptuously and enjoying, enjoying all those things. And he's saying, why are you boasting in your mischief? The, the way that you're acting, the goodness of God endures continually, not your mischief. So you get this positive and negative going on here. The negative looking at the mischief of this individual, the, the boasting, the pride, the, the sheer arrogance of this guy who's just, uh, he's stepped over everybody. He's climbed his way to the top and David responds to him and he, he looks and uh, one who is using the idea of the mighty man, one who is using their strength and ability in a dishonorable way. The idea is self-exaltation. The boasting is demonstrated here. The proud, the arrogant, the, hey, look what I've done. Look how amazing I am. Uh, and yet, David says, God's faithfulness endures. It's interesting, last week when we were looking at the psalm, the, the word he ends with is the same word, the hased, the, the faithfulness, the long-suffering, the mercy of God. And you will see that word come up continually through David's psalms where he's looking and saying, God, your mercy, your long-suffering, your faithfulness, your covenant faithfulness to your people is, is amazing. And that's what David is going to, to rest upon and show security. So he's going to start going through this psalm uh, as he looks, he looks for this. And uh, it's, almost, it's almost as if David is going to look and say, uh, I love the movie, the movie Gladiator, and there's a point in where it says, the, the gladiator looks at the emperor and says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be at an end. And it's almost as if David's looking at this mighty man and saying, you're honoring yourself, you're boasting mischief. But ultimately, God's faithfulness, God's loving kindness, it will rule the day. And that's where David's going to, to hang his hat uh, in, this, in this whole thing. So he goes through and he's going to lay out the characteristics of the wicked. He says their words are hurtful and malicious. And we have to identify, where, where do we find ourselves? Do we find ourselves being this boastful, proudful person who uh, we are characterized by, by the wicked? He says the tongue devises mischief. It's like a sharp razor working deceitfully. You love evil more than good and lying rather than speaking righteousness. You love the devouring words, O thou deceitful tongue. He says your words are hurtful. They have a skewed sense of value. They begin to call what is good evil and what is evil good. And we need to be careful that as we look in our lives that we're not doing that, that we don't mock those people who are doing what is right and say they're, they think they're great, they think they're righteous, they think they're better. Don't find yourself mocking or d- diminishing those who are choosing to do righteousness. So look for those, those people who are doing that and say, wait, maybe I need to, to back away. The blessed is the man who does not find himself sitting at the seat of the scornful, the mocker. We need, to, we need to distance ourselves and be wise in those areas. So they have a skewed sense of value, like it says in verse 3, where they love evil more than good. Do you find yourself creeping that way? If so, say, wait, I've got to work on some repentance. I've got to get back to God. They're threatening and dangerous to those who are in their way. 
You ever meet a person like that? You're like, oh, stay out of their way, man. When they get going, they're like the bull in the china shop and they're going to run everybody over. And we have a responsibility in our lives. If you're in a, a, you're in a position of administration, you're, you're the boss of people, make sure that people don't look and just say, oh, stay clear. It's one of those days. They're dangerous. You know, work on our demeanor, work on our graciousness, not, the, not having that characteristic of wickedness. They're characterized by their words. And Jesus highlights this. Out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So you see the wickedness of Doeg sitting there and spewing, hey, I'll tell you where David is and I'll tell you what they did to him and I'll, I'll, I'll even go and kill all those people. Yeah, no problem. He says they trust in their own abilities and strength. Verse 7 down there, he says, Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength. I believe verse 7 really is a key verse in the psalm. He looks and says, this is the man that made not God his strength, but rather trusted in the abundance of his riches and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Highlighting, you can see the picture of Doeg, this guy who's there, but you can also see in our lives, are we somebody who trusts in our own strength rather than the strength of God? When our life is completely insecure, am I just trying to figure it out myself? Am I just, you know, and we have those personal responsibilities. So, you know, financially, we crunch the numbers. We figure out what we can cut and what's, what's bloating our expenditures here. So we get rid of that. We have our responsibilities to do those things. And yet at the same time, if I'm always just doing it all in my own strength and ability and never going and trusting in God and asking him for his wisdom and asking him for his destruction, uh, instruction, am I just doing it in my own strength? And he says, that's, that's, a, that's a wicked practice to go and go through life and to do everything without looking at God and asking God for strength and wisdom. Trusting in the own abundance of their riches, as they said in the, in the verse there. It's a misdirected faith, love, and dedication. They did not put their strength, their trust in God, but rather in themselves. And we we all battle with that. And that's where David's looking, and David's looking at Doeg, seeing this all happen. He's saying, you're putting your strength, your trust in you. But I'm telling you right now, there's somebody bigger. Abiathar, I know it seems like everything is insecure right now, that life is completely falling apart. But... Don't put your strength in your own abilities. Don't put it in your own, own help. Trust in God. Put it in God's strength. Trust in him. And he says the reason we don't want to be those wicked individuals, he says there's consequences. He, he fleshes it out. Now he's going to say the agent of these consequences is God. Verse 5. God shall likewise destroy thee forever. If I'm David, I'm like, Doeg, I'm coming after you. You're mine. Now, David might become the agent of God, as we know that he does on many occasions. Saul, I'm going to kill you. I'm done. And we know that David had the opportunities to do that. And yet he understood that ultimately God is the one who delivers. If God chooses to use us in that way, so be it. But he's going to trust in God being the agent of deliverance. He understood that justice demands that sin be dealt with. He says, you shall likewise, uh, God shall destroy thee forever and shall take thee away and pluck thee out of the dwelling place and shall root thee out of the land of the living. The righteous also shall see. So he's, he's going to throw this difference in between the wicked and the righteous. It has to be dealt with. David understood that sin cannot go unchecked. And we must root our belief and understanding when we see the wicked prosper, when we see the wicked, wicked excelling, understanding that, hey, this is a temporary thing. God is in control and his justice will demand and does demand that sin be dealt with because he is a holy God who will deal with it. Though it may be on an eternal plane, I'm going to rest that God is in control of all of this. So he looks and he says he's going to destroy, he's going to take away, he's going to pluck up, he's going to root out. All of these words here that he, that he uses against the evil, the consequences of the wicked person. David says, all these things that are secure are going to become insecure. He's going to root out, he's going to rip it out. The, the word destroy means literally beat down something that a structure that was strong is going to be beat down. Things that were secure become insecure. Put it in the context of the security that David is facing. He has no security, and yet he looks at Abiathar and says, there is security in our life. I feel like life is all over the place, but God is the one who will deal with it. We look to God. We don't look to our circumstances. We don't look to the men who are coming after us. 
we trust in God. So all these secure items are, are insecure. What's interesting is you, you note David's insecurity and Saul's insecurity that, that take place there. Um, when David's insecure, there was fear, there was anxiety, but there's this new boldness that he's found. He was insecure, and it seems like he has gotten away from, away from all of it and been able to reflect again on God. Reflect on his goodness, reflect on his justness, reflect on his power and his might. Saul, on the other hand, in his insecurities, what happens? He has rage, lack of trust. He doesn't trust anybody. He begins to make ill-fated decisions. He uh, begins to isolate himself. He eventually gets himself sucked into this self-destructing spiral that's going to consume him. The bitterness, the rage. When you find yourself insecure, which way do you go? Do you find yourself battling with fear and anxiety? Do you find yourself isolating from individuals? Do you find yourself becoming short and more tempered? Uh, less tempered, I should say. Uh, you, you get angry with individuals quickly because your life is insecure. So I ask you then at that point, who are you rooting your security in? You and your circumstances or God and his sovereignty? That God is in control and God is well aware of everything that's happening in your life. And that's the shift that David had to take place in his life. And I believe that is what he's able to offer to Abiathar and say, hey, trust, security in God, it pays off. Note the eternal perspective though. And this is hard because we want, I want justice now. I don't want to wait for justice. I want it enacted. I want to see the wicked suffer now. I want to see it all done. And yet David says, you shall be rooted out. You shall see the um, take, taken away. So there's this, this eternal, he says, it may not happen right now, but I know God's in control and he will do, deal with it. Then he highlights in verse 6 the character of the faithful. There's a, a divine and eternal perspective that allow the faithful to see life's difficulties, especially with people in reverence God rather than the fear of man. Notice verse 6, it says, the righteous shall also see and fear and shall laugh at him. We have two, two psalms in a row where it talks about laughing at the wicked. But David, David has this divine perspective where I'm going to be able to see, I'm going to be able to focus, I'm going to be able to have this fear, not the afraid and cowering, but rather the reverence, the result of trust and dependence in God. He says the righteous will be able to look and say, my dependence is in Jehovah. My dependence in his, is in who God is. He says laughing. It's not that selfish... Uh, delight at the fall of an enemy. But rather, it's when you, when you look at an individual, when things happen, and that relief, that the, when the fate of others has passed you by. Have you ever been in that situation where, wow, I'm very thankful that someone told me to live righteously because that's where I would have ended up. That, that laugh, that, that relaxation, that's, that's what he's highlighting here. The faithful is the one who makes God his strength. He is the sure foundation in the midst of our quaking lives, in the midst of all those difficulty things that are happening. Get back to God being the foundation. All those other things with individuals, with the difficulty with people, it stems from us not having a sure foundation in God. And David says, get back to that. Abiathar, you're a priest of Jehovah. You, you've followed God, and right now it's going to be very easy because your life just got hit with this huge cataclysmic event. Don't run from God. Turn back to God. Get back to where he is at. And you trust him. You put your, your, your life in his control. And the benefit toward the faithfulness of God, he says, I'm experiencing security, productivity, fruitfulness because of it. He says, I am like, uh, verse 8, I am like a green olive tree that's fruitful, strong, productive in the house of God. I trust in the mercies of God forever and ever. I will praise thee because thou hast done it. I will wait on thy name for it is good before thy saints. He says, I'm, I'm productive. I'm fruitful. I'm, I'm having the security. How am I doing it? Because I'm trusting in the mercies of God. I'm making this daily commitment that looks and says, my life is not just about me. And I need to trust that God and his word and his ways. That's what I need to get back to. And that's, that's where he trusts. And he says, I will praise thee because of what you've done. Your mighty, your wonderful works. I'm going to reflect on what you have done in the past and know in the future that, that you're still the same God. And that you'll control and you'll trust. and you'll, you, I, I can do that. He says, I will rest upon who you are. 
Uh, he says, I will wait or I will rest on thy name. Focusing on the name of God and his characteristics and who he is in those, in, in those names helps us to know that he is the God who provides, knowing that he is the God who sees, knowing that he is the, the Lord of hosts, that he is the God of the angel armies, as we looked at last week. That's who we're going to rest upon, not upon us, because when we rest upon us, we know that we're not those things. We don't see everything. We're not holy. We're not faithful. We're, we know that we are finicky. We know that we respect people and we disrespect others. We can't rest upon our goodness, but rather the divine nature and characteristics of who our sovereign and wonderful and amazing God is. So David can look at Abiathar and say, you can have security in the midst of a tumultuous situation. You can have security in that because God is secure. Because he will. What's interesting is if you look at the, the way this, this plays out, verse number one, he calls him a mighty man, you warrior man. And by verse seven, he says, lo, this man, he's just a common man. He's going to be brought low. He's going to go from this guy who thinks he's just everything to just a common person. And God is looking, God is the one who's faithful, God is secure. So we can rest in hard times through affirming that our faith in God and the ability to deal, his ability to deal justly with the unrighteous and the faithful. It just means I have to trust. I have to trust that God is the final, final justice, that he's in control, that he is greater than all, all the people that are coming against me, all the people at work that may be uh, exalting themselves, trying for your job, and you feel like life is just falling apart. God is greater than all of them. I can trust in God's character, in his name of who he is, and I can trust that God has my best in mind. In the midst of a hard circumstance, that's not easy. But yet David says we can do that. If he can do it in the midst of all of that, and he can encourage Abiathar going through an extremely difficult time and saying, hey, focus on God in your hard times. He will give you security. He will give you stability. Then we can too. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to rest in you, rest in your ways, rest in your security, and not in our own. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. Let's get ready to worship.